So if you don't know what you want to do or where you're going to be, at the very least what you can control is who you're going to be spending your time with. And welcome back to Off Record with your host, Corey Levy. Today we speak to venture capitalist Nico Bonatzos, who is well known for being a managing director at General Catalyst, a multi-billion dollar venture capital firm where he was instrumental in the investment in Snapchat. In this week's episode, Nico tells us about how he went from being an entrepreneur to a VC, the behind the scenes details on meeting Snapchat and what happened in those initial meetings that led to being one of the most lucrative investments in the firm. He also gives us what metrics he looks for when evaluating a startup and he tells us which side of the Bitcoin debate he's on. There's that and many more. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Off Record. So thank you so much, Nico, for joining on the show today. Thank you, Corey. Excited to be here. Yeah, I'd like to start by asking, how did you get into technology and how did you get into becoming a venture capitalist? Sure. As a young teenager in Greece, I really loved math and ended up going to study electrical and computer engineering. Over there, truly fell in love with anything, you know, that was a technical problem and tried to understand, you know, what the theoretical underpinnings, you know, were for every, you know engineering problem I was exposed to. Early on, the area that I thought I would be spending the rest of my life on was biomedical signal processing. Tried to do a PhD in the States, but along the way, I figured out this wasn't, you know, the best personality fit for me. Uh, so I ended up spending time in Tokyo, in Japan, for a huge uh, industrial automation company that I worked as a computer engineer designing and developing image processing uh, applications. So after that, I, I would say, you know, I was a polymath, so I spent a bunch of time at Cambridge in the UK, ended up in Silicon Valley to go to graduate school at Stanford and study operations research. And while being here, you know, Silicon Valley is this unbelievable place and Stanford happens to be a Four Seasons Resort, you know, that offers academic courses right in the heart of Silicon Valley. So got to meet people who were really, really inspiring. Tried to launch a social network uh, back in 2010, like everybody and their mother. Social network, you know, the movie was the best movie of that year. But of course, felt miserably like most other people. But along the way, I ended up meeting a gentleman called Chris Farmer, who's now the founder and CEO of Signal Fire who gave me a chance and I took a leap of faith and the two of us joined Strong Catalyst together back uh, in late 2010 to help launch the nationwide seed program for the firm. So I wasn't looking to become a venture capitalist. I ended up becoming one because my startup failed. Chris and a couple of other people from our firm was really inspired by their personalities, their level of ambition and their plans. That's how I ended up becoming a VC. What were some of the lessons that you learned in 2010 when you were working on your social network that didn't work? Sure. First one is you have to be crazy to be a startup founder. Like you really, really, you know, need to want something very badly. You want to see a problem solved. You want to see a product exist in the market and make sure that you recruit others at the very early phase that are like you. So that's number one. Number two with the specific of, you know, my startup, uh, we're building on top of LinkedIn. So I think we underestimated the platform risk. Truly, truly understand that some of the decisions you make early on may limit your future growth potential or be a bottleneck for what you want to do down the road. So we had 
very much underestimated that. Number three, the lesson learned for me as a venture capitalist now is uh, have empathy for a founder. It's really hard to be a founder. You have to learn a lot of things. Your job changes every few months and uh, things are not always rosy. So it takes a long time. I mean, Corey, now you know this better than me now through your after school experience. So I think the biggest lesson learned for me as a venture capitalist was having empathy for founders and me uh, getting into a room with a founder for 30 minutes or 45 minutes to learn about that person's idea and plans for world domination doesn't mean, you know, that I know more about that space than them. I deserve to be arrogant, impolite, cocky, and all that stuff. When you joined General Catalyst, how many people were firm time? Oh, we're just getting started here in the West Coast. So the initial team was uh, half a dozen people. And all of them moved to Boston. It was pretty much, you know, the first hire on the ground from here. Was that like a scary moment for you? Like, you, know, you said by accident you got into venture capital and you weren't planning on becoming a VC. And now all of a sudden you're, you know, one of the first hires at, at a multi-billion dollar VC. Yeah, fund. not a scary moment, but definitely, you know, it felt like a huge, huge challenge in front of us. We were a startup, like our first, you know office in downtown Palo Alto was uh, much smaller than a lot of our seed-funded companies' offices right now. But of course, we're a very well-funded startup at the time. The, the firm had raised $1.7 billion in total in its first 10 years. Uh, so we're very you know, well-funded in that regard. But we're new into this hyper-competitive ecosystem. I think what was particularly exciting to me was the level of ambition that the team had, the hunger that all of us had, and the fact that we shared the common goal, which was to go out and get to meet the most unbelievable founders that we could possibly meet and try and partner with them. So it was very exciting, you know, really, really exciting in that regard, but competition in time. When did you meet Snapchat? I met them a year later. So I met them in early spring 2012. What was... I was a senior at Stanford, cold emailed him. I had heard about him and the product from a number of shared Stanford contacts. And he replied to my LinkedIn email and we met like 10 days later. And what happened in that first meeting? In that first meeting, I actually brought... A young guy from Stanford who was spending like a couple of weeks in some projects with us, who was also a senior at Stanford at the time. So the first meeting was the three of us at the coffee shop at the most recently, you know, like uh, open CSP, so the new campus, which is now five years old. Evan talked about the fact that he wanted to build the fastest camera application out there. He talked about his level of frustration with how slow the native camera app was, his level of frustration with digital communication in general, because it was slow, it didn't contain a lot of information, was not human, wasn't like voice that you and I have now conversation. And then when we hung up or if we're in person, when you or I leave the room, everything disappears. So he talked about all that stuff. The other thing that he talked about was trying to make people smile more and be happy. Of course, he didn't say anything about selfies or empowering the selfie revolution. He didn't say anything about like that. But when we, uh, when the world read the S1, um, five years later, you know, it was very much in line with the stuff that he 
was talking about five years prior when the guy was getting started. Camera company, humanizing communication, making people happier. And what happened after that meeting? What happened? I emailed several of my partners because I was an associate at the time. We should go out and meet him. I asked him to give us access to his metrics and he gave me access to Flurry. Everybody used Flurry at the time. So I took a look into the metrics and we had a meeting with uh, him and his co-founder Bobby like uh, a week or 10 days later. Uh, so after that, we ended up investing in the company, not during that year, but like the year after. So we tried to invest a couple of times, but we're not successful once, you know, we didn't end up raising any capital. The second time, you know, we lost the opportunity to invest, to lead the Series A. So we put in some money in the A and, you know, more money in the B the year after. What were some of the things that y'all spoke about with that, Evan and Bobby in the room? Yeah, you know, it was very controversial investment opportunity back then. Uh, a host of reasons. Firstly, whenever you told any guy, like an email investor, about snapping, uh, messaging up, or sharing messages that disappear, like disappearing photos, all of them would think, oh, great, this is about sharing dick pics and sexting with your friends. So... This was, you know, like something that we needed to overcome. And I think the data, you know, told a pretty clear story. 80% of the users were women. 20% of them were using it even back then, you know, 50 times a day. But when somebody heard the idea for the first time, it was like, great, you know, it's a perfect, you know, sex thing up. Second point was there was no single player mode. And basically that meant that if you didn't have any friends and you hadn't received anything or you were not keen on sending any snap to others, you couldn't do anything in the app. So this was, you know, tricky to overcome. Thirdly, monetization. And back then, it was all about having a lot of data about all the users, having content that stays forever, gets propagated in the internet. And this was a company that said, we don't want to know anything about the user. We are not going to be built on top of Facebook. And by the way, all the content disappears. So all three, you know, points, you know, were very, very controversial at the time. And uh, the group had a really good discussion. How did y'all get over that controversy? I feel like it would be super easy to say no to Snapchat. More smart people, you know, said no to them. Founders had a pretty crisp vision. The metrics spoke for themselves, but it was still small in terms of absolute, you know, numbers. And... You know, at General Catalyst, we have a culture where we don't need all to agree about moving forward with an investment opportunity. But when we have a few of us who are equally passionate about an opportunity, the rest of the group gives us the permission to move forward. So that's what happened. There were three of us who were very enthused. We move forward with that opportunity. When you said the metrics speak for itself, you know, for first-time Founders and entrepreneurs listening to this right now, what does that mean? You know, for a product like Snapshot, what would good metrics yeah. be in the earliest days? Yeah, so back then with Snap, it was all about intensity of engagement, which continues to be the case with any product, frankly, that's trying to capture the attention of a user. So that product down the road would be making money through ads. So as I said, you know, Snap, 20% of the users were using it 50 times a day. Like, that's insane. Like, they're very, very few products that people use back then and today as well. That often, the Google founder has the toothbrush, you know, test that 
He wants every product that Google gets behind in a meaningful way to be used three times a day or two times a day by consumers. And, you know, when I saw that at Snap, I was like, holy shit, you know, clearly some people really love it. All of them were women, and we knew that if we get, you know, young women, the rest of the internet would follow. Snap was controversial back then. It's still a little controversial today. Do you have any other stories about controversy, either firsthand or secondhand? Oh, I mean, a lot of companies, you know, some of them, you know, invested, some others would not invest. Wish.com, you know, uh, was a controversial company in the early days. Why was Wish controversial? Well, Wish was controversial because when they were pitching it to venture capitalists, uh, you know, they had like a bunch of crappy products made in China. It took a while for the products to arrive here. The founders, you know, didn't really care about the, the end customer. All they cared about was price. They didn't care about building a brand. So it was very controversial because in e-commerce, you know, back then and to a large extent today, it was all about building a massive consumer brand like, you know, Warby Parker and their likes. And if you met that team, they're like, oh, we don't care about that shit, you know. We're building a huge e-commerce business that shares a lot of trades from, like, the advertising technology world. So it's all about sourcing demand from consumers, like wish lists of products, and uh, matching it with the huge supply chain that exists in China, where, you know, these suppliers and merchants would be bidding for the demand of U.S. consumers. And... The founders are really smart to understand that, you know, for a huge chunk of the population, the only thing that matters is price. And if you have ridiculously low prices, you're gonna do pretty well. It's almost like, you know, Walmart, you know, a kind of philosophy. How do you think entrepreneurs should, should deal with controversy? Do you think should shy away from it, seek it, or just not back away when it comes up? Yes, I think controversy is great. It's actually a gift. If you leverage it over short periods of time and you graduate from it in order to jump into a new set of controversy for a new customer segment. So basically, the reason why I like controversy in the early days of a newly launched product is because it amplifies word of mouth. And a young startup that launches a product, they frankly, you know, don't have the resources to do paid user and customer acquisition. But if they have a product that sounds stupid, funny, annoying, or sometimes even, you know, disruptive to certain folks, this gets these people talking about it. And then the press would notice, blog are going to be written. So that's pretty cool. That said, though, you cannot be controversial about the same thing for the same set of users and customers forever. Because if you are, your users and customers will demonstrate fatigue and they're going to be like, oh my God, you know, this company doesn't get it or company is a waste of time. So the key is to leverage that initial word of mouth in order to build out your product with utility, serve this initial customer base really well. And as this controversy, you know, gets spread around, you are essentially going to be acquiring new users that 
over there, you have to migrate into a new set of controversy for them and uh, start building product features that are relevant. So it is, uh, for me, a, a theory, essentially, about amplifying and maintaining strong word-of-mouth momentum, which means that your cost of customer acquisition is going to be lower. And what's something controversial today that you think will be commonplace tomorrow? Do you have any predictions? Crypto is one that clearly now it's becoming more and more mainstream, but the vast majority of the world is still skeptics about cryptocurrencies. And, you know, why is Bitcoin, you know, now worth six, seven thousand bucks? And where is it going to go? Why is the internet going to be using, you know, all these digital currencies to support payments? Like, these are, you know, big, uh, big, you know, spaces. That uh, if the crypto world works out, they could capture this space. So, for example, people would say Bitcoin is so expensive today, and it's worth two hundred billion bucks. But then, you know, gold is worth tens of trillion. So, is it expensive or not? And both of them are store of value. Uh, one example, uh, but I can tell you like a bunch of stories, you know, about other stuff that is still in the early days and could be, you know, controversial. Yeah, yesterday, uh, me and a friend walked into Chase Bank and uh, asked if we could buy Bitcoin or transfer Bitcoin into our Chase account. And three mm. people had no idea what Bitcoin was. That was yeah. pretty funny. No, that's um, true. I, mean, I, I can give you another anecdote. For Halloween this year, I got dressed as a Bitcoin fork. And um, it was uh, actually a way for me to test the awareness of the crypto world. Uh, so I went to a party here in Silicon Valley. And I would say just, you know, 30% of the people got it. The other 70% of people either, either hadn't heard of Bitcoin at all or didn't know that Bitcoin forks. Wow. Wow. And especially surprising given that it was in Silicon Valley. Exactly right. Are you long or short Bitcoin? I am long cryptocurrencies, yes. Got it. Got it. Like and for me, you know, the most exciting part is that they have a shot to rewrite the laws of distribution. Uh, and as a result, we will have a new set of startups that could leverage that, learn faster than the bigger incumbents, who not only will have to run their own businesses, but will have to learn how to play in this new world. And when we have this new kind of emerging platform uh, opportunities is when Immense value creation gets created by small companies. So I'm very excited about that. And frankly, you know, crypto is the only tech that can offer us a promise for that right now. What else is exciting you today? And what other areas are you researching and kind of wanting to learn more about? Sure. Um, I'm interested about augmented reality products and services that are taking an AR-first approach to serving specific use cases. It is interesting what's happening in mobile AR now. Uh, and it's uh, fantastic to see the big platforms like Apple and Google get behind it, allocate resources, rejigger a little bit the app store distribution and promote these um, new novel products. It's really fun to see consumers once again, you know, talk about some recent apps they downloaded which I hadn't heard, you know, for a long time. But of course, we're early days, so I'm really eager to find out what the UX challenges are, because probably we're not going to be holding our phone in front of our face for 20 minutes. So 
what kind of new use cases could mobile AR serve? And um, what path to having real AR with some consumer hardware that we wear and it's going to change the way we interact with the world and communicate with other people? These are two areas from um, new and new that uh, I've been spending a good chunk of time on. And when you have questions or problems, do you have like mentors that you go to? And if so, who would you say three mentors of yours are that you go to and you have problems? So I have the benefit of working with some of the industries, most seasoned uh, venture capitalists. So internally, you know, my, my partners have invested a lot of their time in me and I've been grateful for their patience and the fact that I've wasted a lot of their time over the years. So people like my partner Hemant here, he's like amazing. My partner Joel, he's terrific. And others, you know, in the industry who over the years spent a lot of time with me, like George Zachary at CRV. And, um, um, you know, the other thing I do every year is at the end of the year, I go and compare notes with uh, some of the leading consumer early stage investors uh, just to hear the other point of view because in venture you can drink too much from the kool-aid and really you know <laughs> believe in your own shit so um at the end of every year i, I go and meet you know with uh, jeremy Yu, with folks you know from benchmark i chat with jeremy levine at bessemer folks on Greylock and Sequoia, just to see, you know, for the interesting companies that they um, got uh, to raise Series A's and Series B's that year, what is it that they saw and perhaps we miss, or what is it that we liked and they hated. Uh, and that's how I learn. That's really how you know, I learn, and I augment, you know, my thinking for the next time around. What's the biggest thing that came from that last meeting last year? Last year was a weird year because pretty much none of this group of investors was very bullish about doing a lot of stuff in consumer. So last year, I think the lesson learned was that there were very, very, very few opportunities that had a shot to become massive. And even then, would any of them achieve escape velocity before the bigger companies shut them down. So last year, you know, the lesson learned was that out of this group of like, you know, 10 people, only a couple of them, you know, had done a Series A or a Series B check. So it's as if, you know, the whole, you know, uh, group, you know, was on vacations for the year. And everybody was looking into new areas. You know, some people were looking into genomics. Others were looking into AI stuff. It was, uh, oh, great, you know, let's wait for the next wave or Let's try to invest in some speculative new areas. I want to play like a short game, and it's basically like a lesson learned from each of those mentors you just mentioned. So like, what's one of the biggest things that you've learned from George Zachary? George is just amazing, you know, with uh, entrepreneurs. And he's a phenomenal judge of their potential. He reads people really well. What I've learned is that he can be a phenomenal investor just by being a really good people investor. And his portfolio speaks for that. Um, it's had amazing returns in many, many different sectors without him being a domain expert in these different sectors. And what about from Hemant at General Catalyst? He has how many degrees from MIT? Five. Yeah, five or six, yeah, lost count. Um, <laughs> so Hemant is, is an incredible, incredible uh, strategic thinker who has the ability to connect 
connect with people from all sorts of uh, life, inspire trust, and can truly analyze what's happening in their industry without being a domain expert. So like Haiman's ability, you know, to deeply understand after a conversation what's happening in a specific industry is unbelievable. So the way he asks the questions, basically, trying to understand how people are learning and make decisions, make decisions is what I've learned from. Last word about Joel, who he started Kayak, right? So Joel uh, can tell what's going to be a consumer brand that is going to be very successful from the early days. Like he has this, you know, snob test that certain products pass and uh, it's amazing to see it in action and try to understand again, you know, what are the right questions, you know, that uh, one should ask, you know, to gauge if a uh, product is going to work out or not. The other thing um, that I've learned from Joel is um, truly understanding what kind of founders and um, companies will have a really, really easy time raising future VC rounds. But he's very good at that. Like he has a unique ability to figure out what is going to be VCI candy for future investors. <laughs> so, what does that look like? Search for the founders or honestly, not the full package. Like they can inspire confidence to future VCs and they can inspire, uh, motions of greed and fear. But basically, you know, the key is to find people who are incredible, you know, uh, storytellers. And, and Joel, you know, has a has a knack for that. How do you find the diamond in the rough? How do you, how, what are some of the steps that you're taking to find, you know, untapped talent? Yeah, so talent, amazing talent can come from anywhere. Strong believer in that. Uh, and if they're given opportunity, they can shine. And I don't care, you know, where people come from or what they did before pedigree they have like honestly you know don't care the vast majority of the founders i've invested in the first-time founders um i care about about individuals who are learning animals they're not domain experts in what they're doing today but in four years if we put them in the room with a fortune 500 ceo of that particular industry that they're in that person will be intimidated by the knowledge of the first-time founder so like that's Probably the biggest, you know, uh, ability to learn quickly. And the second one is, um, I, I'm very enthused about, uh, partnering with founders who have nothing else to do. Like they're grinders. The problem they're solving is their life. And if I try to change the topic and talk about the giants or Bitcoin or anything else, we'll just shift, you know the conversation back to the product they're building. What about on the, the other end? What are some of the ineffective things that you see first-time founders wasting their time on? You compromise um, about the talent that you have on board and your co-founders and uh, how quickly you should fire people. Um, that's like a common mistake, like splitting, for example, a company in a 50-50 because you were best friends in college and you're starting that company together without, you know, just thinking more uh, about why you should be starting this company together, who's going to be doing what, how you're complementing each other. So I think people bar is uh, 
always you know, a work in progress. Second one is going back and testing the hypothesis that uh, and the core insights that first time founder had when Chirhi you know got started a few months in based on the feedback that Chirhi heard from the market. I'm surprised that people don't do that because essentially six months in you're executing on a six months old plan and the world has changed in you. Number three, yeah, there's only one reason why companies fail, they run out of money. There's no other reason. So sometimes uh, with first-time founders, fundraising is harder uh, because you haven't been there, you haven't done that, you don't have a strong network. So you think it's something that is a waste of time, so you don't do it fully focused and organized manner. Having a dedication, adding a couple of mentors and advisors who can help you pay huge dividends for you and your company. So th- these are some of the common you know, pitfalls, you know. People bar being low, not testing the initial insights and hypotheses of why you're building what you're building. Inability to raise capital because it's a destruction. What would be your advice to someone in their 20s who's you know, just graduating and they're, they're not sure you know, what they want to do? Uh, just go out and find and follow credible people that inspire you and you think they will care about you. I've seen again and again individuals here in the Valley who ended up joining incredible individuals early on in their careers. And 10 years later, these younger folks are enjoying a huge windfall from having been part of uh, an unbelievable person's mafia. So if you don't know what you want to do or where you're going to be, at the very least, what you can control is who you're going to be spending your time with, who you're going to be working for, who you're going to be learning from. So find people that can inspire you there. I'm pretty sure that super interesting and hopefully amazing things will happen to you. And did you have any tools or tactics when you were in your early 20s about around maximizing serendipity to find people that are inspiring? Yeah, I mean, same like you. Like you are like the poster child of that. Like, look at what you've done while you're a teenager and uh, while you've been in your early 20s. So for me, you know, cold emailing work. Like, sure, you know, it's intimidating, but I mean, what's the worst thing that can happen to you? People may ignore you or say no. But if you're persistent, uh, a lot of notable, talented, powerful people would take the call. And after you've done a few of these meetings, probably you learn how to better present yourself and you learn how to market yourself in order to uh, have a shot at joining, you know, that uh, powerful person that you're in the line or in the room with. Do you have any favorite books that you'd recommend to young, ambitious people check out? Interesting books. I like The Ascent of Money. That is the history of, of in the world and how people have treated money over, you know, millennia by Neil Ferguson. I like Poor Charlie's uh, Almanac, which is um, a book about uh, Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett's longtime partner, and all the frameworks that he has developed over his life to analyze businesses, industries, and life in general. Um, and, you know, for technologists who want to see how the world is going to look like, Ready Player One uh, is like a really, really, you know, exciting one. And, uh, you know, we can start building, you know, stuff towards that world. What's something that you know you should do, but you haven't done yet? I should take better care of my health and myself in general because uh, over time some of my bad habits or the compounding effect of my poor 
lifestyle is going to catch up with me. So, you know, I'm 33 now, and uh, I'm thinking more and more about that, but I haven't figured out, you know, how to operationalize this. So that's one thing, you know, that's in the back of my mind. Now, aside from health, what do you wish you had started doing or done more of much earlier in your life, specifically like actions or activities with, with compounding effects? I have a higher bar for people that I invested a lot of time. When you're younger, you think you have infinite, uh, the opportunity cost is pretty low. So you don't shoot high, or you're not very thoughtful, you know, about who you spend your time with, why do you spend your time with them. Um, I wish, you know, had done a better job, you know. Uh, I mean, no complaints, you know, I think I've done, you know, really, really well, but that's, uh, that's something that looking back, how you operate now, Clearly, there was a lot of room of improvement, you know, back then. Nico, I want to thank you for spending the time this afternoon. No, thank you. Thanks a lot, Corey. Thank you once again for listening. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode with Nico Bonatzos. Thank you so much again, Nico, for coming on the show. I think we can all agree that the inside and behind the scenes on the investment process of Snapchat was very interesting to listen to and can help founders listening to the show. Also, we should take note of the metrics Nico spoke about to see if your consumer startup is attracted to VCs. And of course, the hot topic of cryptocurrencies was alluring as Nico is long on Bitcoin. You can find all of his links in the description. You can also follow your host Corey Levy on Twitter at Corey. Thank you once again. And other than that, stay tuned as we have episodes every Tuesday and we'll see you next week on Off Record.